This episode of Undistracted is brought to you by Chambord, an all-natural black raspberry liqueur produced in the Loire Valley of France. I don't know how y'all feel about this quote-unquote holiday season, but I'm personally enjoying hearing holiday music in every elevator because I'm kind of weird like that. And of course, I love an excuse to spruce up my home cocktails. I know we've all been getting tired of those same old spiced eggnogs, so when I'm entertaining, I'm going to be serving Chambord in a glass of Prosecco for my Christmas cocktails this year. And there are a lot of things you can do with Chambord, so y'all will have plenty of options. Find Chambord wherever you buy your spirits or on drizzly.com. Please drink responsibly. Chambord Black Raspberry Liqueur, 16.5 ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Chambord is a registered trademark, copyright 2021. y'all we back it's been a minute so allow me to reintroduce myself my name is not hove (laughs) but it is Brittany packnett cunningham and i am your partner in this journey we call undistracted you might catch me in the street as an activist or on your tv as an analyst on your phone screens as a writer or just around the way as a very proud black girl but wherever it is just know you're always going to get the same me i missed y'all while we were out on break i mean a lot has happened the rolling back of women's rights in Afghanistan, Texas's six-week abortion law, COVID wants to make its way through the entire Greek alphabet, Britney is finally free, and some of society is finally realizing that the Super Bowl wasn't Janet Jackson's fault, just like the Beatles breakup wasn't Yoko Ono's. It has been a time. So I'm happy to be back and ready for season two with all of the rule breaking, status quo smashing, critical questioning you've grown to love and demand. It's a new season, more focused than ever. We are undistracted. On the show today, Black feminist scholar and truth teller, Brittany Cooper. I'll be talking to the outspoken activists about white women, motherhood, and the emotional drive behind their voting choices. When we wonder why white women keep on voting for Republicans, they are doing that because they understand that their caretaking role in their community is to pass down a world in which white men get to be on top. That's coming up, but first, it's your untrending news. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. Brace yourselves. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard the state of Mississippi argue that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. We will hear argument this morning in case 191392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Lawyers for Mississippi are defending a law that bans abortions after 15 weeks and are urging the court to go even further and overrule the right to abortion set in 1973. 
Here's what Justice Sonia Sotomayor had to say. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I, I, I don't see how it is possible. If the court agrees with Mississippi's abortion ban next year, as it is likely to do, many states are expected to instantly follow. But here's the thing. Most Americans want to keep abortion legal. A recent poll from ABC News and The Washington Post found that 60% of voters believe the Supreme Court should uphold Roe, whereas only 27% want to see the precedent overturned. Upholding Roe is, of course, also the right thing to do. You know, us having full bodily agency and all. Some advocates have been pushing us to stop relying on the courts, which, let's be honest, have not been doing us many favors, and actually move toward enshrining the explicit right to abortion in the Constitution. I say, let's protect our freedom by any means necessary. Hands up! In the wake of the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, advocates are bringing more attention to the case of Crystal Kaiser. Crystal, a survivor of child sex trafficking, is awaiting trial in Wisconsin on charges of killing her alleged sex trafficker abuser three years ago. She was 17 at the time, and she shot him in self-defense after years of abuse. Kaiser's mother, she says that her daughter is the real victim. The fact that it took for her to do something because she got tired of it. And he trying to like sweep the whole problem under the rug, but it's so much more bigger than just her. Advocates argue that if Wisconsin self-defense law actually led to Rittenhouse's acquittal, then surely Crystal should be allowed to claim self-defense too. Now this story is really important. Crystal is one of many criminalized survivors, people who've been imprisoned for killing or injuring their abusers. You may remember Centoya Brown, who in 2019 was finally granted clemency 15 years into her Tennessee prison sentence for the exact same thing Crystal is now on trial for. We can't keep criminalizing survival, y'all, especially when vulnerable women and children like Crystal are not kept safe by our systems in the first place. Crystal was forced to defend herself to survive, and in my opinion, it's a crime that she's being further harmed by a criminal legal system that promised to protect her. And finally, tributes keep coming in for the visionary fashion designer Virgil Abloh, who died last weekend after battling a rare cancer. He was only 41. Virgil made history as Louis Vuitton's first black artistic director, and he was regarded as an innovator who helped bring high fashion into the modern era. Here's Virgil speaking to Hypebeast magazine in 2017. You know, I'm an optimist. You know, I'm into humanity more than like the cool sneakers or something, but design has that ability to transform and use both those tools. There have been Lots of tweets about how hard Virgil worked, how he cemented his legacy, how it all got done before he died. But as my brilliant colleague Treasure Brooks said, the point is not to grind more in case life is shorter than we planned. The point is to concentrate on how much we're actually living and never to let grind culture take life away from us. Virgil was a father, a brother, a son, a human, and his death leaves a gap like any of ours. That is his legacy. 
Coming up, I'll be talking to Dr. Brittany Cooper about the right wing's concerted effort to shut down black women and the personal toll of her being so outspoken right after this short break. Shambord cares about championing underrepresented groups and creating a more inclusive world. They're partnering with us on the Undistracted Spotlight to amplify the brands of BIPOC women and gender nonconforming entrepreneurs. For today's episode, we want to shout out Jasmine Pierre. Jasmine is the creator of The Safe Place, a free mental health app for the Black community. She was inspired by her late father, who always made it a point to help others in need. People like him, she says, are the ones who change the world. I know that's right, Jasmine. Now, Jasmine is hoping to change the world, too, by bringing more awareness and acceptance to mental health with the videos, discussions, and self-care tips that her app offers. You can download the Safe Place in the App Store for free. Congratulations on building your business, Jasmine. The Undistracted Spotlight is brought to you by Chambord Liqueur. And we are back. So look, we rightfully spend a lot of our time on this pod talking to and about Black, Indigenous, and other women and femmes of color. But, uh, white women. This last month with some of y'all has been real interesting. So first, you helped Trump-endorsed Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin into the Virginia governor's seat. And then next, you berated your school boards to stop teaching Toni Morrison and George Johnson books. Like, I I can't even with that. And then there was Kyle Rittenhouse's mama. We'll get to her later. But the bottom line, this ain't gonna work. It's not a new phenomenon, of course. It's been happening for hundreds of years. Back in 2018, in the shadow of the 53%, I went on TV and I reminded white women that your whiteness will not save y'all from what patriarchy has for you. And every time we have a month like the one we just did, there are white women who will post that quote of mine everywhere. So what is it actually going to take for enough white women to finally listen? Well, here's just the person to help us answer that question. The one and only Professor Crunk, Dr. Brittany Cooper. She's a Rutgers University professor, a co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective, and the author of books like Beyond Respectability and Eloquent Rage. She's a good troublemaker and always speaks her mind. Dr. Brittany Cooper, I'm so grateful to have you here on Undistracted. Thank you for joining us. So glad to be here. And thank you for joining us on your birthday. December 2nd is a beautiful day in the history of this country, this world. Thank you. I mean, it's Sagittarius season. I also share this birthday with my fellow Britney, Britney Spears. So it's a uh, Britney party. Listen, I'm always down for a Britney party. I'm (laughs) glad Britney is finally free. Let's talk about freedom a little bit. I think you know that we are a show dedicated to true equity and liberation for all people, but especially women, femmes, and non-binary people. Yes. So I want to ask you, as a culture, how are we doing with that liberation journey right now? December 2nd, 2021. You know, there was some recent polling data that said that support for the Black Lives Matter movement is drastically, dramatically shrinking um, Mm -hmm. among white Americans. 
And so I think that that's an indicator of how we're doing. I think that Black people continue to be in this space where we are hypervigilant, where we understand the urgency of this moment, um, where all of us are looking at the march back into a kind of 19th century horror show happening before our eyes. And I think we're all trying to figure out how to both not to lose our minds in this moment and also how to find the energy to fight this multi-generational battle that just never seems to end. And the thing that's so hard is I remember that during the George Floyd protest, we saw this tidal wave of change. It felt like corporations were putting out statements. Everybody was sort of talking about this. And we are just one year out from that moment. And already, you know, we see our white counterparts going back to status quo and status quo is they don't want things to look too terrible. Hmm. But then once things start to look slightly like normal, which is to say just your regular level of white dominance, then they are ready to embrace that again. Yeah. I think that's where we are. And I think it's a, I think it's a hard, I think it's a very hot room to be in. Yeah. It's hot Mm. in here. Yeah. It's definitely hot in here and polite racism seems to be, To your point, the very comfortable status quo. There's another status quo, though, a piece of this larger status quo that I want to get into with you. Yeah. Because, you know, on season one of the podcast, we kind of, we hinted at this, we poked around at it a little bit. And when we started off the season, I said, no, we need to talk about the white women. Come on, let's do it. And we were like, who are we going to talk about it with? Oh, Dr. Brittany Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) For certain, Because, look, white women voters in Virginia sealed the deal for that governor's race uh, in which Republican Glenn Youngkin won over Democrat and former Virginia governor Terry McAuliffe. There was a 13 percentage point swing toward the GOP among white women. That includes a 37 point shift among white women without a college degree. But all white women have to be part of this conversation. I mean, it's just... This pattern keeps repeating itself. Yeah. You know, white women on the right exhaust me. And they exhaust me because as a feminist, as a feminist scholar, as a feminist activist, you know, I am often confronted by Black women with the question about why should we be feminists when white women are so terrible, when they're untrustworthy, when they politically undermine all of our gains? And I understand that my short answer to Black women is always, well, because white women, as we can clearly see from their voting behavior, didn't invent feminism, right? They are not the source and the origin of that particular movement for liberation, which is why they cannot be the arbiter of our commitment to it. But one of the things I've been thinking about trying to make sense of this, I think we actually have to have a conversation about white women and motherhood. Mm. Here's why. Because as we know, one of the ways that Republicans got to this victory in Virginia were because of these asinine fights at school board meetings about whether or not critical race theory was being taught, right? And it got reframed on the right as this question about parental rights and do you want to be involved in what your kids are being taught as parents? Well, one of the things that we don't say enough when we think about how white women are politically inclined, and this is something that I think that we actually can understand in Black communities. So in the Black community... One of the things you know that we fight against in movements is that all of the energy is about Black boys and their mothers. And so mm-hmm. a Black boy gets killed and then we deal with the, the the grieving mother who is made a spectacle of often to her great detriment. But all of this energy is about Black mothers saying, what kind of world are we passing down to our children? And so yeah. they vote 
their racial interest above their gendered interest often because they want to protect our sons, our husbands, our brothers, our uncles. It becomes so much about men. We miss that white women do exactly the same thing. They're just doing it from a position of power. So the thing about mothering is that we charge mothers in the Republic with passing down yeah. you know, possibility, right? The possibility of citizenship, of rights, of career. Well, if you're a white person and the marker of progress in every generation is tethered to white dominance, then your understanding of white maternity is that you have to continue to pass down generational white dominance. So when we wonder why white women keep on voting for Republicans, they are doing that because they understand that their caretaking role in their community is to pass down a world in which white men get to be on top. That's not just their husbands, but it's also their sons. That's emotionally what they are voting for and what they are doing. And until we can have a conversation about the emotional drive and narrative around white maternity that drives so much of these political decisions, we will continue to misstep here. And in Black politics, we get this, right? We understand that all you really have to do is get a bunch of Black women mad about what is happening to our sons, and Mm -hmm. any revolution can happen. We should use that as a basis to understand that that's literally what is being mobilized when you tell a bunch of white mamas to show up at the school board meeting because someone is shaming their children. They're tapping into that emotional ethos And it's like the Janus face of of a coin, right? And we miss it because we're like, well, white mothers and black mothers cannot possibly be doing the same thing because white people have everything. They have all of the power. They have all of the privilege. But just like we know that black women are the backbone of our communities, white women are the backbone of their communities. They're the people that instill the values. They're the people that raise the kids. I mean, you know, they hire black and brown women to also raise the kids, (laughs) right? But they're the people who sort of are, are the folks that are inculcating values. And so just like black women are trying to pass down this notion that we are equal, we are worthy, white women are passing down values that say, you are meant to be a leader. The world is yours. It is your oyster. They might use the language of equality, but really white folks forever have dominated black people and called that equality, which is why you get mm. a constitution that says all men are created equal while you have slavery. Because, you know, in white political ideology, equality is dominance. And that is what white women are passing down. And so I think if we can come to understand that, maybe then we can change our political narrative to think about what strategies then appeal to a more ethical white maternity. So this is the question I want to ask you, right? Because I've been thinking a lot about white mothers and that white maternal instinct to your point. And we will see these white women yelling at these school board meetings. We also, uh, a few weeks ago, have seen Kyle Rittenhouse's mother go from television station to television station to television station, defending her son and his character. So if this is part of that maternal training, then is there any incentive to actually withdraw from that kind of behavior? Like, can that even change? You know, I think that we have to do the same work, quite frankly, among white women that we we have to do among Black women. Most Black women aren't feminists, right? So what happens when we go into Black communities and we say, you know, what about the girls, right? Um, There's always this sort of pearl clutching, like, what do you mean, what about the girls? What about our boys, right? (laughs) Um, And so white women have a version of this. And I think that it is incumbent upon 
white women who get it. I will always say that I'm looking at white feminists to actually use their politics to create a set of narratives to disrupt this. Here's why. Because the thing that we have to be saying to white women is your investment in being a good mother is actually being used against you to get you to sign up for a way of being that limits your own scope of possibility. You know what I mean? Mm. That says your only role is to really mother these children. Because here's the thing. You know, there was recent evidence, too, that only 9% of the women who worked from home during the pandemic got promoted, while 33% of the dudes that worked from home got promoted. So Mm. we've got to start saying to women across the board, and to white women in particular, this actually undermines your own political well-being in the long run to keep signing up for this project because these dudes are out for themselves. And do you want to raise sons who ultimately are only out for themselves and mm. don't have any sort of commitment to the women in their lives, right? And, and and it reminds me, like many Black folks that grew up in the Deep South and in predominantly white environments, I have these white friends and former friends from high school who both want to tell me about why they support Trump, white women, right? But who also mm. tell me about how their husbands are insufferable. You know what I mean? How they're <laughs> unhappy with these sort of narcissistic dudes that have no empathy and that are overbearing and who basically treat them like a Donald Trump, right? They're not connecting the dots? No, they're not. I'm like, why aren't people saying to these women, you know your husband makes you miserable. Why do you keep on giving this man more power to oppress you? Not just economically or socially, but emotionally. You don't even enjoy being in the house with this man. Not to mention the fact that he then will go out and create or support a party platform that is against paid family leave, that, as you already said, is against reproductive justice, that is against access, all of the things that you're talking about. Yeah. So you, you've recently really been under attack by the right wing. And I will say more than usual, right? Because unfortunately this has been par (laughs) for the course. Um, You made some remarks in September about white supremacy and the need to eradicate it. Yes. And those words were later taken out of context. Yeah. You said those words with our friend Michael Harriott from The Root, right? Yeah. Michael and I were talking about critical race theory and the concerted effort on the right to misrepresent and misunderstand that intellectual tradition. Right. And he then asked me about what happens if white people prove recalcitrant, right? If they remain invested in this world of dominance, of hierarchy, of oppression that really is not working for any of us. We're going to play back a little bit of what you actually said, and then I want to ask you about it. There is no answer that is sufficient. Like, the thing I want to say to you is we got to take these motherfuckers out. But I know, but like, we can't say that, right? We can't say, like, I don't believe in a project of violence. I truly don't. Because I think in the end that our souls suffer from that. So what happened? So look, part of what happened is that I expressed this moment of frustration in what was more of a dinner table conversation. Do I think that Black people should mount up with weapons and engage in a campaign of genocide against white people? Absolutely not. That's completely ridiculous. What floors me about the disingenuous nature of the response is that Mm. there really are people who believe that Black people should be oppressed every day Mm -hmm. and should never, ever feel an extreme reaction or frustration about the nature of that oppression. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I have done in my work, sometimes to greater or lesser eloquence, is to give voice to Black rage. 
What we know is that Black people in the aggregate do not have, nor have we ever had, a massive campaign to murder or kill white people. And quite frankly, when I then said right after that moment, I do not believe in a campaign of violence because I think our souls suffer from that, I really meant that. I have challenged in our Black organizing spaces the rhetoric around violent revolution, in part because I think that it's an incredibly masculinist rhetoric that says Mm. that the only way that we can change things is to destroy everything and to kill people. And I come to that both because of my own story as a survivor of violence and therefore not trusting men to take up arms against anybody because I often think that women and children become, and femmes and non-binary folks, any gender marginalized person becomes a casualty of those kinds of wars. So I don't support any sort of violent revolution for precisely those reasons, but also because I think that the thing that makes the Black Freedom Project so extraordinary is that we have over and over again chosen not to remake ourselves in the image of our oppressors, right? Not to use their tactics. And what I hate about that moment is that it became a tool for other people to mischaracterize our movements as the violent movements. And so... I have had to sit with that. You know, I don't know how to not victim blame myself and at the same time to say, what does it look like to exercise care for the comrades that I'm in the street with who deserve both an honest conversation, but who don't need, you know, sort of me giving our enemies easy tools to like do additional harm, you know? I I respect that. But I will say sister to sister that they are going to try to engage in that harm regardless. And that attempting to contort yourself in a way that is antithetical to the eloquent rage that you have helped give so many of us language to is a disservice. A disservice to your brilliance. It is a disservice to the movement. It is a disservice to our people. And to be really clear, the response was expectedly violent. Fox News and the New York Post, the Daily Mail, they cut off the very clear second part of your comment that says you do not believe in an exercise of violence. And the response that you get are these heightened (laughs) death threats and right-wing smears in public and in private. And let's be really clear, these are not just mean replies on Twitter, right? So this has also had a, a personal toll for the work that you do. Yeah, death threats, doxing, people passing information around about me online, you know, many dozens of emails to my job, one particularly memorable threat, someone threatened to bring an armed militia to my job to neutralize me. That was the language they used. They also threatened the staff members that run the office at my job. And Mm. most of the folks who do those jobs, they're disproportionately Black women. So there are other Black women who get death threats and who have to deal with the cops, you know, around this kind of stuff. And they threatened my department chair. They threatened to protest outside her house because she wouldn't fire me. So these are well-funded, coordinated assaults that are designed to sort of overwhelm systems. Um, And and I want to say that one of the reasons that I've been able to withstand some of those assaults, in addition to sort of being supported in community, is that I have tenure, You know, I'm one of these Mm. Black women that's like 
has a job where they the university can't just fire me simply because I said something they disagreed with. And I'm not saying that as a flex. I'm saying, what do we do for Black women who want to speak their truth, but who don't have any sort of community support, right? Yeah. Because it isn't just about what I say, but about the sisters that these guys don't even know they're targeting, but that become collateral damage. So when they send the suspicious packages to my job and the cops have to be called and the building has to be evacuated, all of which are things that have happened, there are other folks in the building besides me. Yeah, It is scary. It's all tactically designed to silence us and to make us to stop seeking the truth. I mean, this is the pattern that we see. You have clearly spoken about um, the death threats you've received. I've spoken about the ones I've received on this podcast. We had both Kimberly Crenshaw and Nicole Hannah-Jones on the pod last year. They had to talk about these same things. We watched Joy Reid go through it just a couple of weeks ago with our comments about Kyle Rittenhouse, somebody who actually killed people. But your point is so clarifying and why Black women at all stations in life are favorite targets of these right-wing mobs because it is intentionally to terrorize us out of speaking the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a concerted effort to deplatform public Black women, right? And look, the deplatforming of outspoken Black women is as much a part of our journey as any feminism we could imagine. Ida B. Wells, when the white men in town burned down her newspaper because she calls out white women, she too, her newspaper gets burned down, right? And they tell her like, you can't come back to Memphis or we will kill you. So this is also a part of white supremacy that we should be naming. It is not just the sort of targeting and murdering of Black men, but it is literally threatening to silence Black women who are doing the job that we're always doing. Black women are always somewhere on a lecture platform telling the story, doing (laughs) the analysis, calling stuff out and being like, you're not going to do our people like this. And white men come for us too. White communities, white conservative racist apparatuses come for us to um, to silence and to shut us down. Even when that lectern is the the street corner, it's a church house, it's the city council meeting, we are always there speaking that. What I really appreciate about you, though, is that knowing that that is the threat, you still intentionally defy the kind of respectability politics that can trick you into thinking that will keep you more safe, right? And we know that this comes at a real cost. I mean, has shirking respectability become a really conscious choice or are you at the point where it's habitual and it's natural (laughs) and you just wake up like this? I I would say both and. I mean, most days I really do kind of wake up like this, but there was a journey to let that self lead as opposed Mm. to the sort of more performative self. Because I don't think Black women are ever not aware of our need to perform and of the way that people are watching every move that we make and what the consequences of those moves are. So I would say that when I sort of roll up to my job, as I like to tell people, I don't cuss at the dean when we have meetings, you know what I mean? I have a sort of different comportment because strategically, one, I just, I have good sense. I was raised with good sense. And I just know that every strategy doesn't work in every place. But I've also tried to build a life where there are many spaces in my life where I can literally just show up in the way that I choose to, which is as someone who is slightly uncouth and (laughs) very country and very crunk. Because I think that Black folks deserve to not have to always perform and to feel like the failure to perform civility, professionalism, proper decorum, that our entire fate and set of possibilities 
is tethered to whether or not we can make white people think we are civilized enough. Yeah. Like I, I reject that and I resent that. Well, I personally love that you wake up like this and that, <laughs> and that you do it with great intention. Before I let you go, I have to get back into the news a little bit. Let's yeah. let's talk about this Supreme Court, right? So yeah. yesterday they heard arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And we know that the majority of Americans still support a person's right to have access to abortion and end their pregnancy. But odds are that Wednesday's case will result in abortion being outlawed in a lot of states. How do we brace for that? How do we prepare for that? You know, it will be one of the most devastating Supreme Court decisions of a few generations, quite frankly. And I think that what we also know at the point that the Supreme Court makes that decision is that people who need to terminate pregnancies will not stop terminating pregnancies. Mm -hmm. What they will do is resort to desperate and unhealthy measures in order to get the medical care that they need. And so I think that we have to then take our notes from movement spaces, which is how are we going to build uh, community apparatuses, fugitive spaces for folks to get the healthcare and services that they need. In the 70s, we had these kinds of organizations. I imagine that we will have to go underground again to support folks being able to, to, to take care of themselves. And I think that the other thing to remember is that you know, we are not the first generation of people to live through a massive gaining of rights and then loss of rights. This is the thing mm. that ties us to folks like Ida B. Wells, right? Ida B. Wells, you know, was born in 1862. So she lived through the gains of Reconstruction and then the losses of Jim Crow, Mary Church Terrell and Anna Julia Cooper, all of those women that I write about in my work. One of the reasons that they continue to be my muse is because they saw the country lean towards its better angels and then become nightmarish in the span of a lifetime. And the lesson that they teach us is that you simply don't stop fighting. You keep showing up, you keep witnessing, mm. you keep calling it out and saying, this is wrong. We can be better than this. We don't have to do this. But I think the other thing that those women did was they built a massive social apparatus to take care yeah. of Black communities. They built the nursing homes, the libraries, the hospitals, the old the folks' schools. homes. They, yeah. Schools, right? Kindergartens. So mm. these women built an infrastructure to take care of our people. And I think that we have to see this massive assault coming from the right on the social safety net across the board as an invitation, not just towards protests, not just towards writing angered think pieces, all of which are important, but what community institutions are we going to build to take care of people, yeah. right? That is our job. That is our task. That is what our people have done. And here's the thing. When we figure out the answer to that question, we won't have a problem with people getting on board with our revolution. Once you know how to educate people, take care of their health care, and make sure that they got like an income of some sort, to, to manage mm -hmm. their basic needs, folks will get on board with your revolution. Dr. Brittany Cooper, brilliant as usual. Thank you, thank you, thank you for lending us your time and for lending this world your voice. We are always better when we get to listen to you. Thank you. Dr. Brittany Cooper is a professor, writer, and unapologetic public speaker. Her most recent handbook, which she co-authored, is called Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood. It's amazing and intersectional AF. Make sure you check it out. 
Britney dropped several major keys during this conversation, but the one I'm really sticking with is that we have been here before. We are not the first folks to live through major gains followed by massive losses. And often those massive losses come because we made major gains. It's retribution from those who'd much rather the social order remain the same. Ida B. Wells knew it. Mary Church Terrell knew it. Harriet Tubman had scars to prove it. We make traction on abortion rights. They eliminate access. We trounce voting expectations. Well, here come new suppression laws. Trans folks finally getting the shine they deserve. Cool. Let's take away their health care. Just like the intentional destruction of Reconstruction, we are facing yet another existential choice about whether we will be a world of our aspiration or one of our baser instincts. But the power of those who've always chosen the former and helped us fight our way back from the repeated hell of supremacy, that's my motivation. Feel free to borrow it. That's it for today, but never ever for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Matlow. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Thanks always to Treasure Brooks, Grace Chen, and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself. And our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Make sure you subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. Thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free.